Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome everyone, welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. I'm excited to have my friend Leo Burke back on again. We're gonna be talking about Adida Samraj. He was an American spiritual teacher, a writer, and an artist, and the founder of a new religious movement known as Adidam. Adida initially became known in the spiritual counterculture of the 1970s for his books and public talks and the activities of his religious community. His philosophy was essentially similar to many Eastern religions, which see spiritual enlightenment as the ultimate priority of human life. Adida wrote many books about his spiritual philosophy and related matters, founding a publishing house to print them. And today we're going to have a conversation with, as I said, Leo Burke, who is one of his senior students and someone who's continuing to carry on the work. Leo is a professor and director of the Global Commons Initiative at Mendoza College of Business, the University of Notre Dame. And in this capacity, he teaches courses on the commons to undergraduates, MBAs, and executive MBAs. From December 2000 through June 2008, he served as Associate Dean and Director of Executive Education. And prior to joining Notre Dame, Burke served in a variety of roles at Motorola, including Director of Dean of College of Leadership and Transcultural Studies with Motorola University. He was a founding member also of philosopher Ken Wilber's uh, Integral Institute. And in 2009, he founded with Carolyn Lee and Kathy Skerritt, the Anthroposphere Institute, an educational organization that champions the global commons through courses and action learning additions. Fundamental to the work of Anthroposphere Institute is an understanding that the commons is fundamentally expression of prior unity or the the a priori indivisibility of all life welcome thank you very much michael it's very good to connect with you again and uh, look forward as always to our conversations thank yeah you. me too i'm really looking forward there's so much in adidas teachings and work. And of course, we've been talking about the book, Not Two is Peace, The Ordinary People's Way of Global Cooperative Order by Adi Da. So let's talk a little bit about your experience of Adi Da, uh, the idea of not two is peace, and the ordinary people's way of global cooperative order. Can you give us a little background on that? Sure, sure. This book, uh, which really came out of a consideration that Adida had, he was uh, asked by someone who worked for the United Nations to uh, bring 
his message of peace to articulate it so that this person could circulate that message with um, other colleagues and executives within the UN system. And it started out as a pamphlet and then grew uh, in terms of essays to uh, be a book that's now in its fourth edition. Uh, and really attempts to summarize uh, the larger vision, as, as you've indicated, uh, that all life is indeed an inherent unity. And as such, uh, we should live on that basis. And in order to live on that basis and address problems on that basis, Adida envisioned and actually called for the establishment of an institution that he calls the Global Cooperative Forum. That has not happened to date, but is, uh, I would say, more than a worthy aspiration. <laughs> it's really necessary, uh, given the fact that, as we see today, looking around, current systems of governance are just unable to address the needs of humankind certainly collectively, as we see with issues like climate change, but also uh, more uh, within individual borders uh, that the needs of citizens are not being adequately addressed. So the principles that are enumerated in Natua's piece really uh, lay out, you might say, a blueprint for how humanity could move forward with a spirit of cooperation and tolerance and uh, working together in an accountable, responsible fashion. So it's with regard to this vision that a colleague of mine, Carolyn Lee, who lives in Ireland and I, uh, talked to leaders from various parts of the world relative to how this could be uh, actualized. So it's quite a journey, I must say. Well, it's quite a journey. It's quite a vision. And one of the things that comes to mind is Adidai himself said, this is not a utopian vision, but it kind of sounds like a utopian vision. How do you distinguish the Global Cooperative Forum from a uh, utopian idea of the future? Sure. The, well, classically, we think of utopia as a kind of circumstance where everything works out. And, uh, you know, it just gets better and better. And Adida makes clear that, look, that's never gonna happen in this particular realm because fundamentally uh, people are born, people suffer and people die. And so it's, it's a mortal circumstance. Uh, there are always difficulties to be faced. What he's really calling us to is to say, you can come together to address these circumstances cooperatively, or you can stay in a tribal mindset in which uh, competition, fear, and violence rule the day. Uh, but there's no need for us to do this. Uh, we could actually operate collectively. And you can just look again, if we take the issue of climate change, there's no avoiding the fact that we're gonna have uh, challenging difficulties moving forward as the climate continues to 
begin to spin out of control. I'm currently speaking to you from Fiji, and we're facing already higher sea levels, wetter, bigger, and more frequent storms, cyclones. Uh, there's no avoiding that, but our response to it can be one of uh, fear and bewilderment, or it can be one of how do we cooperate, not just cooperate on the island where I'm staying, but cooperate among the islands uh, of Fiji, among the nations of the world uh, in ways that we have not done to date. So his calling is really not for everything's gonna work out forever and ever, but it's like under these circumstances, how can we cooperate together in a way that uh, we haven't been showing? Yeah, uh, it, it, it seems as though he's looking at, when I look at what's the key issue here, it's this thing about prior unity and interdependence. And yet we live in and from a worldview of separation that the scientific Newtonian Cartesian sense of science has left uh, relegated us to being objects in a world of objects. So what you're talking about is a kind of awakening to the interdependence of all life. Maybe COVID uh, and climate change could actually be helping us to move in that direction towards waking up in the morning and recognizing I'm an interdependent um, unit of a system that's all encompassing and affects everyone and everything. What 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 are your thoughts there? Yeah, the well, just to take the example you're talking about with regard to COVID. I mean, it's interesting. Antonio Gutierrez, the General Secretary of the United Nations, said very recently that unless the entire world receives treatments uh, uh, that are necessary or deemed to be necessary for COVID, then uh, no one is going to be protected. Similarly, with regard to climate change, you can't build a wall high enough to keep the other person's carbon uh, out of your atmosphere. And so it's just increasingly obvious, just at a very gross level, you might say, that the issues we're facing have to be addressed in a way that looks at the well being of the totality. So we are uh, obviously interconnected. In fact, we've known that in, in certain ways for a long time. Even our, our global financial system shows how interconnected we are, you know, in terms of financial systems. Um, Not to mention ecological systems and the relationship. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but beneath this, beneath the interconnection, beneath the connecting the dots, so to speak, um, Adida is really pointing to a fundamental a priori unity where all of perceived reality, all of conditional manifestation arises from, is never separate from uh, an inherent uh, non-dual state 
an inherent oneness. And so the extent to which we can understand that as mystics have told us for millennia, then that provides at least the potential basis for a new understanding of how human affairs can be ordered. And as we have devolved you know, into such challenging tribal perspectives, and even as we see in North America and many other places around the world, uh, all kinds of polarization around various kinds of issues, uh, we see the, the harshness of this and the non-workability of it. And so there really needs to be a new, uh, we need to have a new perspective that's not just based on a philosophical ideal, but it really draws upon the inherent reality in which we participate. And mm. that's what Adida is calling for. So my first thought about that is, boy, is that a threat to the ego uh, and a threat to a civilization that you could say is traumatized uh, through hundreds of thousands of years of evolution and dealing with areas that are considered to be normal, uh, but are far from normal, uh, like putting money ahead of life and, um, you know, that we can just go chop down all the trees and all many, many, many ways of that. So inherent in that is something that Adi Daw talked about, and I'd like to expand on because it relates to this, our identity, our ego, our narrative, is that humanity can only move forward in this task of coming together in interdependency and not to, but can only move forward by losing face. Uh, in other words, it's a threat to our identity. Can you talk about that, Leo? Sure, sure. It's definitely a threat to our identity. We had, um, uh, I'll give you, I'll start with just an example. Once I was asking a group of in, uh, executive MBAs teaching in a class um, what their primary identities were. And they came up with all kinds of things, you know, I'm, a corporate manager, I'm a father, I'm a member of this religion, I'm a fan of this baseball club, uh, whatever it was. There was only one person in the class uh, who was a, um, a French African who said, uh, I am a human being and I am a member of humanity. And so it's interesting how we almost instinctively, uh, or we at least have a tendency to, to uh, make things kind of small in terms of this mechanism of identity, less than the totality, let's put it that way. And so Adida is saying uh, to move beyond all of this, 
there is a need to just say, to lose face, as you're saying, Michael, that uh, we have all been foolish in our ways of understanding how things are organized. And, you know, it's not that way. It's just not that way. And so rather than being identified so strongly that I'm an American or that I'm Chinese or that I'm in this particular clan in Afghanistan or hold this particular religious view uh, to say, no, you know what? We're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. And if you just leave our minds checked at the door, we'll find that gee, all of our DNA is basically the same. Uh, our organs all operate the same. And, and our impulses in life are basically the same. We want the best for our kids. Uh, we want to be happy. Uh, so there is a letting go of limited identity, which is this loss of face that you're speaking of that is a necessary prerequisite to embracing something more universal and something that is fundamentally happier. Mm -hmm. And his idea of everybody all at once, I love that term, everybody all at once. And the first thing that comes to me, particularly living in the West, is the consumer ego model that, um, uh, it's also a trauma response in many ways. If, uh, if I don't want to feel the pain and the struggle of myself, my family, and my ancestors, then I can always shop. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and that sounds very, you know, uh, maybe to some that, that sounds very superficial, but it's not. It's really, you know, so much of our dissociation uh, is handled through what we buy and what we have what how do we go yeah. go beyond that and and talk about an egalitarian sense of interdependency yeah yeah we really have uh, gone off the rails and you could say you could point to different times in history that have you know accelerated this um recently i was giving a talk where one of the things just most recently is after World War II, we had, a, we had all of this industrial capacity that had been used for making armaments uh, during World War II in America, say, other places too, but let's say in America. Uh, and then after the war, we you know, have all these returning soldiers and have to get an economy going and we had the capacity for pouring out enormous uh, output that could be consumed. And so over time, uh, you know, in the 50s and then the 60s and then the 70s and, and leading up to the present time, we began to buy into an idea of consumption as having some kind of giving some kind of ultimate meaning. And we even talked about we have a consumer economy. 80% of the economy is based on consumption 
and that the purpose of life is somehow to be fulfilled, fulfilled as a consumer, fulfilled as an ego. Mm -hmm. uh, so this has led us far from home, so to speak. And, and, and so uh, diverts us. I remember uh, one time uh, taking the subway from Chicago's O'Hare International Airport to where I was living in Chicago. And I had been on a long international trip. And the car, the subway car that I got on, 100% uh, of the people were on their uh, device, their smartphone. Uh, most were seemed to be scrolling aimlessly uh, and few were text messaging. And, and I, it just occurred to me that, my God, you know, <laughs> we've been taken over by aliens. Here we are, we're all, our attention has collapsed onto these tiny little devices. Nobody's talking to each other. Nobody's looking, you know, to the right or the left. And so how do we move away from that? How do we undo that to uh, a sense of being able to live together, to understand each other, to tolerate our differences, to work together, to cooperate? Uh, that's a major task. Uh, and as that happens, and it will need to, uh, then uh, we can find that, you know, the entire species can perhaps move in a way that accords with its deeper impulses. And that's what Adida is referring to with everybody all at once, that the moral force of the species, the moral force of the human heart has a capacity to uh, come together as a unified whole and in doing so be able to address issues that we have in common together and to be able to take the welfare of everyone into account. Um, it is, <laughs> there's no question about it. It's a long way from where we are at the moment. Mm. Or so, it seems. so it seems. It seems that way. And yeah. one of the things that makes it particularly seem that way to me is when you talk about responding to the impulses, how are we going to do that with a disembodied culture? We can't respond to impulses unless we're in our body. And uh, most people, it's like the uh, James Joyce quote, uh, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. You know, <laughs> yeah. This culture that we live in, that yeah. we are a part of, is for the most part disembodied. And you can't yeah. feel uh, the relationships. And you talk about all the people looking at, at their smartphones. Of course, that's, you know, all over the world, people are more and more dissociated by tech by being lost in their technology and in their head and not in their body which is where we actually can feel the interconnection and have an experience direct experience of interconnection when we're in our body and when we are uh not in the middle of a uh a, a trauma sin symptom uh like uh flight or fight or 
or freezing or or the things that happen when we're not uh, regulated in our physical bodies. Yeah, no, I, I, what you're saying is so true. And, you know, there's such a paradox where people engage in a, in a digital world um, really at one level, at least at a psychological level, often for some kind of connection, but it's um, really a faux connection in, in a certain way. And that it, it, it's so important for us to be <clears throat> face to face, body to body, so to speak, uh, heart to heart, uh, to be able to uh, truly be able to connect. People want connection at one level and then they, they dissociate <laughs> at another. So I uh, just think of the work that you've done you know, in, in terms of honoring the need to be grounded and the need for people to really be in their bodies to be fully human and how essential that is. So there's clearly a relearning that is necessary. There's an essay in Not To His Peace called Zero Point Education, mm -hmm. where uh, Adida is talking about the need to really unlearn our present conditioning and to be able to come in touch with the always already space of prior unity. And it's so clear that something like this is needed uh, for humanity, mm -hmm. for the guidance that's required. I do want to say that I don't fully agree with you about the faux connection, uh, like, you know, we're on Zoom and uh, right now our, our videos are not going, but I have been actually amazed. You know, I have a lot of groups that I, trauma groups that I work with, uh, learning groups, and I'm actually uh, and and not to mention therapy clients, private clients that I work with uh, that are trauma clients. And I'm actually finding that there's actually some ways that it it gives a little more safety so that people can do the deeper looking and the deeper work to integrate and digest the dissociated and traumatized parts of themselves. And I know I'm not the only one, uh, you know, that's been quite successful in being able to do that with people online. Overall, the unconscious going, you know, I, I haven't been on Facebook for years. I refuse to go on, although my assistant posts things there. Um, you know, there's, there's a kind of way that we can go away, but there's also a way with intention and commitment that we can actually deepen our connection online and be in touch with a global community. Like you're sitting in Fiji right now, and I can feel you in my nervous system in Fiji. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you can feel me in your nervous system over there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. So to make uh, my comment more nuanced, clearly through 
digital communications, there are tools like the one we're using where there can be not only connections made, but very meaningful connections. Okay. Where I, I find uh, uh, social media uh, is uh, woefully lacking in its ability, uh, which I distinguish from communication technologies. Right. So right. social media is, is fundamentally founded on an assumption of separation. Everyone registering in Facebook is a, uh, is a separate unit and whatever they do or portray, you can register your likes or dislikes or whatever. And the, that's, a, that's a different matter that, that trivializes the capacity of human beings that binds attention in very um, uh, trivial ways. Um, whereas digital technologies, and, and perhaps we'll more and more, we'll be seeing this, who knows what the global health situation, how it's gonna unfold, who knows you know, how climate change disruptions are going to unfold. Uh, so we're learning during this pandemic time, I think more and more how to use communication technologies, which in a, in a very positive way. I yeah. think it's also though, it's a little bit like the telephone an early communication technology where you can use that telephone for relatively inane or meaningless communication or you can use it uh, for depthful conversations. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we bring to the use of these technologies and our intentions uh, is, is very important, like the work you're describing. You've been listening to my interview with Leo Burke, professor and director of the Global Commons Initiative at University of Notre Dame, and we're talking about the philosophy of Adida Samraj, who was an American spiritual teacher, writer, and artist, well known in the 70s, about his philosophy of non-dualism. Just so you know, if you miss any of these interviews, you can go to welloflight.com and click on We Earth Radio, and they're all archived. There's like uh, 15 plus years of some amazing people, Ram Dass, and uh, just all kinds of great thinkers like Joanna Macy, and Barbara Marks Hubbard, Peter Levine, and oh my God, there's just so many of them. But uh, just go to welloflight.com. Also, I wanted to tell you that I will be doing a live meditation retreat in Nelson at Selkirk College next weekend, actually. If you'd like to find out more about those classes, there's the Deep Dive Meditation Workshop next weekend, and then there's an online workshop 
called Emotional Reparenting. You can find out more by going to Nelson Castlegar CE at Selkirk.ca or just call 250-354-3206 to find out more. And there, yeah, I'm excited to be teaching at Selkirk this year. So I hope you'll join me. Thanks so much for listening to We Earth Radio. You, you mentioned zero point education, and I think that's a good subject to touch on at least because in at least in, in at least in the West, I won't say everywhere, but I think it is pretty much everywhere that education has become more about propaganda and how can we create consumers with the advertising and how can we get people to fall in line and believe what we want them to believe. So there's a kind of um, advertising magic or something that's in this whole thing. So it's more about producing people who follow orders and who work according to what is deemed the needed work to happen. So to get to 
zero point education? What what does that mean? And who decides what education is? If we're talking about this global forum, who decides? We're looking at an egalitarian, but but there has to be some kind of governing body. How do we decide who decides? Yeah. So these are these are interesting questions. So let me let me start with your original comment here that most people are today, the global education system today is about somehow creating workers who are consumers, workers who can be consumers, who fit in to a certain kind of pattern. In other words, large systems, whether you call them a nation state or a military industrial complex or whatever, these larger controlling forces have an intention to maintain order. And in order to do that, to keep people focused in a way that enables them not to get chaotic or out of control. This has limited the capacity of human beings to really be ecstatic and transcendent in their, in their way of living. So the zero point education that Adida talks about and the Global Cooperative Forum that he talks about is, is based not on philosophical ideals, but is based on what he calls reality. It, in other words, how are things really? What prior unity isn't just a philosophical concept. There really is uh, a unitive dimension to reality. And physicists tell us this, mystics tell us this, and we can, each of us, can experience this. And so a zero point education uh, curriculum, you might say, would be based on a, uh, an approach to reality that takes prior unity as, as a superordinate understanding. And so if you take that as the case, then how do you order human relations in a way that are able to navigate through problems or, and, and come up with solutions that are really reflective of the way things are at a deeper level. And so you'd be educating people into cooperative processes. Co the word cooperation sounds you know, like, oh, gee, you know, it's not a very profound term, but as you look into it, it's utterly profound how we transcend individual differences for the, the good of the totality. It's very, very meaningful. And so who would decide? It's not like there'd be a uh, group of educators with a certain ideological framework, but it's more reflective of, of what's the, the truth in which we're really living that needs to come to the fore. That's my understanding. Yeah, and I cannot see any possibility of that happening without a movement towards large-scale trauma integration work on large 
in large groups. Yeah, yeah, and that's course, very that's, that's very something, interesting. Something yeah. that Thomas Hubel I know is working on, and yeah. very very promising things are coming out of of the whole trauma field right now. I had Irvin Laszlo on last week. Mm. And Irvin Laszlo wrote the foreword to Adidas' book, uh, not to his piece. And we were talking about being coherent with life, mm. that everything in the universe is striving towards coherence, except for a very broken, traumatized, fragile human society. <laughs> mm. Mm. And and I see that as a product of, you know, not just current trauma, but the trauma that we carry from dropping atomic bombs, slavery, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, mm -hmm. genocide of native peoples, colonialism, mm -hmm. all of these things are are trauma events that we carry, not just individual trauma but collective trauma. Yeah, sure, sure. The, the epigenetics, you might say, yeah. of, of trauma, uh, of our collective karma, uh, collective egoic karma over forever. <laughs> yeah, and, and karma is really just frozen past. It's unintegrated yeah. experiences from the past. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the, one of the real um, important questions, I think, Michael, for what you're raising, because you're raising a very, very important uh, issue. One of the questions is, is there um, a capacity of transcendence that enables us to move beyond these uh, intracted traumatic, these frozen traumatic states that people are in. In other words, I agree with you that, that traumas need to be processed. And I think one of the, the coming big traumas that we're gonna be facing is relative to climate change. As you know, sea levels increase, for instance, the UN has said 40% of the world's population lives within 100 miles of the coast. Uh, their you know, sea level increase will flood coastal zones. You know, you know, hundreds of millions of climate refugees potentially. You can imagine the scale of trauma with regard to that. Yeah. Uh, how do we? How do we address that? How do we help people? Um, uh, so all of that has to happen. I, my intuition is that what Arida is also uh, calling humanity to is a dispositional quality that rests in not our individual identities, but in the uh, the identity of the totality, so to speak, mm -hmm. a prior unity. And that can this transcendent dimension arise, you might say, concurrently with whatever 
trauma processing that uh, needs to occur uh, so that as a species, we can, um, you know, move to higher ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Use a mixed metaphor here. Yeah. Yeah, no, well said. And I, one of the things that he talks about uh, in his book is the dual basis for right and true oneness. Talk a little bit about the exoteric domain of progress and the esoteric domain of transcendence, since you brought that up, as a basis for mutuality and interdependence. Yeah, yeah. So it's really a polarity, uh, this need for progress and need for transcendence. If we don't have progress, then uh, we are going to be shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak, and, and have all kinds of disruption and war and, and this type of thing. And, and humanity is well-suited, particularly the Western mind is well-suited to progress, certainly at a material level in terms of developing technology, uh, developing business processes and so on. Survival solutions as Adida calls them. Um, but the unfortunate thing is just like the left side of the brain tends to be dominant uh, so much, the, uh, this matter of progress tends to dominate our entire worldview of what life is or should be. And as Adida points out that this need for transcendence that most for the most part, we see through spirituality and philosophy and the arts play a critical role in this, has always been so essential uh, for humanity. And, and that it's very important that it's not just that the right brain be honored in the midst of this, but this transcendent dimension of reality is really what makes us happy. It, it's where we find love and, and that the progress dimension should actually be subordinated. The exoteric should be subordinated to the esoteric. And as this happens, then we have a better chance for a, a truly a rightly ordered uh, society. Yeah. Well um, said. So, yeah. yeah. I, when I, you know, in the mind of most, I would say, even the, when we talk about the domain of progress, that looks like, oh, more stuff, more consumption, more, yeah. more. Yeah. And so it's collapsed. Even democracy is collapsed with capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> we need a new path. I mean, we just, our global footprint, uh, there are not enough rare earths for us to extract on this planet to be able to satisfy, you know, an endless stream of uh, uh, consumer electronic products, as an example. Uh, so really, we need something else. One of the things that we didn't talk about in the interview we did a year or two ago, however long that was, um, was this idea about uh, 
a social contract of egos and the expectations and illusions inherent in this kind of social contract in relationship to security, longevity, leisure, and enjoyment. Talk about the social contract of egos a little bit and how we can move away from that through transcendence and into this interdependent state. Well, ever since um, humans have organized themselves I don't know if you ever read Harari's book, uh, Sapiens. Uh, I haven't, but, I know uh, it, I haven't read it. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting account. Uh, as human beings have the capacity to organize themselves through on the basis of narratives as a result of what Harari calls the cognitive revolution. The um, coming together, people have come together with certain sets of expectations. And just as you have uh, laid out, people come together because they want to live longer, they want more security from the tribe in the next valley, uh, they want an increased enjoyment of life or, you know, increased freedom from need, um, whatever it might be, whatever the criteria might be, but those tend to be the big buckets. And so they form their own tribe or their own uh, city-state or their own nation-state in order to have those things. And what we have seen, you know, over the last few hundred years is, particularly since the Peace of Westphalia, uh, the nation-state has been a dominant model for governance at the geopolitical level. Mm-hmm. But clearly, it's, it's breaking down. Clearly, it's breaking down has merged with various uh, economic uh, systems, capitalism being a dominant one in the West. Uh, You know, during the communist era, there were attempts to make socialism uh, a dominant economic system uh, in countries that, such as Russia. The, all of this stuff, is not working in as much as what we're seeing that these large collectives cannot deliver the goods uh, that people are expecting. And now we're seeing, as I understand it in the United States as an example, uh, longevity, which has been increasing for uh, well over 100, 150 years is now uh, beginning to decrease and uh, due to a variety of factors. And so why is all of this happening? And Adida points out that with ego culture, this this me-centeredness of what I need, what I want, what I aspire to, whatever, uh, ends up being unworkable because what it requires for me to get my needs met or my group's needs met most often involves the uh, disadvantaging of others so that I get my needs met. In other words, there's a kind of a zero sum dimension 
to these kinds of expectations. And Adida is calling for uh, a reorientation. And given the fact that as we started this conversation, that we do live in a mortal realm and look folks, it's not gonna be utopia. It's not all gonna work out. Everybody's gonna suffer and die. And given that circumstance, there is a way that we can still live that enables us to have social contracts with each other, but based on higher principles. And if we can do that, such as uh, cooperation, tolerance, participation together, and being accountable to each other, then new possibilities can emerge. So I really hope, Michael, you know, as things unfold over the decades ahead, and we'll see obviously more challenges due to climate change, if nothing else, then at least there can be pockets of people who begin to understand these new possibilities. And maybe those pockets will become larger and spread and you know, before we know it, there's everybody all at once. Well, we're getting close to the end here, but some we could talk for hours, Leo, I know. But um, I think that one of the key issues that needs to be looked at is the issue of control and security and the fear that's behind that and the unwillingness to actually be willing to embrace uncertainty and the unknown mm -hmm. so just speaking to what you just said you know of uh, uh the messiness <laughs> of of life itself um mm -hmm. those seem to be really important you know that that we aren't going to create this kind of of um uh, collective forum without dealing with this mm. be in control, which keeps us unconscious to what's actually unfolding and occurring. So we can't listen to the emergent future, what's coming, because we're so busy trying to control what we're afraid might be coming. And, yeah. and the idea of, you know, the uncertainty principle, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that if we can embrace uncertainty, the potentiality is uh, exponential then from there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So coming to the point where we can understand that the impulse to control, as you say, is really based rooted in fear and that any thoughts that we have things under control is fundamentally an illusion it isn't the case. You could get hit by a bus, uh, you know, the next day. Um, the to to embrace uh, not just to allow uncertainty, but to embrace it, or as Adida calls, not knowing, or he also refers to it as perfect ignorance. To embrace perfect ignorance leaves one so vulnerable that you simply feel the essence of being. And in doing that, there's ultimate freedom. And so there's this great paradox that uh, 
is it appears to be there that if humanity could uh, really reorient itself would you know open up whole new possibilities yeah uh, my friend, it's so good to spend time with you. Um, I wish I could come to Fiji to do a direct interview. I could use a little Fiji time right now, but. Uh... <laughs> oh, well, you're always welcome, Michael. It's so good. I, I so appreciate your work and, and having, you know, thoughtful speakers uh, available for your audience and, uh, you know, you persist in this so tirelessly. Uh, thank you for the mission that you've embraced. Yeah, well, thank you for your work and also for carrying the message forward of Adi Da, because, uh, you know, uh, you really are the flag bearer uh, of that vision and as well as your own and, and the, all the work that you do. So it's, it's just really an honor to spend time with you, uh, Leo Burke and I look forward to our next conversation. Sounds so good, Michael. Stay healthy and be safe and uh, take good care. Lots of love. You too. Right back at you. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.